tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Hearts are heavy with the recent headlines about the violent cases over the holidays. There were two murder-suicides, the first just before Christmas at Pearl Ridge Center. Police say Jason Cachuela shot his estranged wife and then killed himself. On the Big Island, Elizabeth Fernandez was found dead in Kealakekua days after filing for a temporary restraining order from her estranged boyfriend. And it turns out a gunman shot dead by Honolulu police had days earlier shot his girlfriend on the freeway. We talked to the Domestic Violence Action Center's new executive director, Monique Ibarra, about these violent cases. It's so horrific. We, we were just devastated. Domestic violence happens every day. It happens every day. But what we don't have happen every day is a, a homicide by domestic violence. So this is what throws us off and really gives us these emotions of tragedy and uh, questioning and uh, being unsure of, like, what is all, what is this all about? Like, this doesn't make any sense at all. Well, you know, the case over at Pearl Ridge, that was just heartbreaking because, you know, the poor woman was shot, you know, in front of her child. And, yes. you know, she witnessed um, uh, this terrible thing. And so your heart just breaks for the, for the children. It, it really does. And every so many people have said that. And what I'm thankful for is that the, for as, tragic and horrific as it was for her to have witnessed her mother being murdered. I'm so thankful that she's alive because sometimes the children are also taken by domestic violence. I'm glad she's okay, um, so to speak, that she's alive, although she has a lot of trauma that she'll be dealing with for the rest of her life. Yes, and you know, I just happened to be somewhere when I think the initial word that came out was it was an active shooter at uh, Pearl Ridge. And mm-hmm. you know, someone I know immediately, I think, called his wife to find out where are the kids because he was so worried, you know, because that was his neighborhood. Um, and you, yeah, you just don't want to get caught in the crossfire. You don't. And that that's like a, that's a terror. It's a terror. So it's a terrorizing event that happened. So you can you imagine what it is for a victim of domestic violence to have to live through the terror of fear and violence all the time. We just had a little snippet of it by thinking that there might be an active shooter. So it, it just it kind of puts it into perspective what a victim might have to deal with. And then there was the tragic case also, the murder-suicide on the Big Island. And what I saw on the news was that, you know, uh, she had filed for a TRO. And yeah. because of the holiday and the processing, you know, it, it some of the red tape, it just... It didn't get, the info didn't get where it needed to to go. Right. And it it brings me to the point where um, what we know in the domestic violence world is that one of the most dangerous times in a relationship is when the uh, victim decides to leave. And we see this in these two cases where women who wanted to leave their abusive relationships filed for a restraining order and um, they suffered the ultimate consequence. But what we don't want is, you know, the, the message I want to give out is don't stop trying to get help, that there's help available. And this doesn't happen, again, this is not something that happens very often, thank God, um, but that um, we want people to still reach out and get the help that they need and to stay safe and to stay alive. The other day I happened, you know, to catch the news about a, a woman being shot uh, on the freeway, not knowing that a few days later that this would you know, evolve into a police shooting and a, a, a manhunt and, and a high-speed chase. I mean, uh, that just is also tragic. It, it is, and I, I felt the same way. When I heard it on the news that this man had shot a female, the first thing I thought is this is, a, this is domestic violence. And what I heard later is that she was his ex-girlfriend. And um, so that makes sense to me why we had that thought process. And, you know, it is just frightening to see how the violence, you know, escalated uh, in yes. that particular case where he was shooting at police officers and two did get hit as well. Right. We hear that often that an abuser will say to his victim that if I can't have you, no one will have you. And this, again, this played out, which is so unfortunate and so tragic. And it really makes me believe in so many of us that while we have, we have a lot of help available, we don't have enough. And there's much more that we can do as a system to keep victims safe and children, too, um, because they're, off, they're also often you know, caught in the crossfire, so to speak. Yes, and we just recently talked to someone who was involved in a 
child custody case with her ex-husband. And sadly, in that case, he kidnapped the child and killed his child and then killed himself. So it's just tragic when, when you see this control issue get out of hand and just innocent lives are lost. It, it really is. It really is. It, it's horrific. And so the Domestic Violence Center, I mean, I know you folks, you know, struggle every year to to raise money because, you know, your cause is so important. And yes. yet it's not easy funding a lot of the programs that you offer. Thank you for bringing that up because one of the most unique features about our agency is we actually are a legal services agency. We actually have attorneys at our agency that work with victims of domestic violence to go through divorce cases and temporary restraining order cases and paternity. Um, and so that's many of the costs are associated with what it takes to have staffing to offer the appropriate legal services to victims. And we don't charge victims unless they can pay a portion of it or if they can't. Uh, no matter what, we're going to work with them to help them get through their court case, which leads to better quality of life. It leads to safety. And, um, and you're right, like we, we have valuable attorneys, we have valuable advocates, but to pay staff, it does take some funding, and um, it always seems that there's gaps to fill. Well, this new year is not off to a good start with these three you know, violent cases. What is it that you want people to understand about the need out there? That this is, it's just so apparent based on these incidences that the need is there, that we need services for victims and children of, the, of domestic violence. That there, but there is help available, and I would say don't stop reaching out for help if you need it. First thing is to know, you know, what is domestic violence about? And we have some extreme examples of domestic violence. And then if someone questions if they are a victim or not, there's help out there. They could actually call our helpline at 1-800-690-6200. If if a victim or a family member isn't sure, give us a call and we'll help them to um, answer some of those those questions. But there's also other agencies in the um, throughout the state. Call a domestic violence agency. Speak to an advocate. Um, get your questions answered. Maybe maybe now is not the best time for somebody to get a restraining order. Maybe they need to get some questions answered, but certainly do what you can to stay safe. And uh, as a community, please keep supporting agencies that help victims of domestic violence and their children. And um, speak to your legislators. Um, learn about the laws that are coming up that they might be able to participate in to get greater safety measures passed. You have just taken over the reins over there at the Domestic Violence Center. I mean, what are your hopes for this new year? One of the first media things I had to do was talk about the murder-suicide of Teresa Teresa Cachuela, and I thought, oh, I I didn't want to start my tenure here with that, but then I had to rethink it and say, no, you know, the, the community needs to know that there's help available and that we don't have to live in fear of what might happen to us. And so I hope that this next next year ahead is really a reawakening of the fact that our world is, uh, is can be a very violent place and it should not be so in a family where there's uh, supposed to be love there. So I'm looking forward to strengthening uh, laws that we have right now and maybe even increasing some of the laws or adding to it so that we have a better safety net for uh, victims and their children. Well, Monique, I really appreciate you carving out time for us. And uh, let's just hope that uh, if there are folks out there who are in difficult situations, that they will reach out and be strong and, and get the help that they need. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Catherine. Happy New Year. Thank you. That was Monique Ibarra, who recently took over as head of the Domestic Violence Action Center from longtime leader Nancy Kriegman. Uh, the Domestic Violence Hotline, again, is 1-800-690-6200. We'll have a link to more resources for getting help with domestic violence on the conversation uh, page of our website later today. This is Steve Kerwood, host of Living on Earth. 
I'm excited to be on Hawaii Public Radio for a weekly look at climate, ecological health, and environmental justice. We confront the challenges of climate disruption, but also showcase the spectacular biodiversity of the planet we call home, including species like Hawaii's very own Nene, tonight at 6.30 here on HBR One. Support for HPR comes from Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older, with courses designed to engage the mind and enrich lives. Virtual Open House Sunday, January 7th. More by searching O-L-L-I-U-H-M. During the recent string of high-profile domestic violence incidents on Oahu and the Big Island, no children were physically harmed, but kids are all too often victims of domestic violence, which is why we're re-airing our interview with Leslie Hugh. She created the nonprofit Pierce's Pledge in honor of her nine-year-old son, Pierce. He was killed by her ex-husband in a murder-suicide in 2021 during a child custody dispute over the COVID vaccine. Pierce used to come to Hawaii because his grandparents have a business in the islands. His favorite haunts on Oahu were Allen Davis Beach in East Honolulu and Ala Moana Shopping Center. I came across their story thanks to Eric Pape, a former journalist with Honolulu Civil Beat, who penned an article for Atavist Magazine, an online platform for long-form narratives. We talked to the two of them uh, just last month. Eric starts us off with how Leslie and Pierce's story touched his heart. It grabbed me in a big way because there was the big fight over vaccines was very ripe at that moment during the pandemic. And the idea that there was a father who became so obsessed with that, that he was willing to commit a horrific, unfathomable crime was clear to me that this was a story that said so many things so powerfully. And it was so shocking. And on a personal level, Pierce and and my younger son were born at about the same time. And so when I went up to meet Leslie for the first time, the last thing I did before I went up was we had a, a birthday party for my son. And then I went up there, uh, you know, at the age of nine, you know, all of the fragility and innocence and and, and everything that's baked into that. And and the sense of of mortality was was very palpable to me, even though my son was just being a vibrant son. And so when I went up there, I I think I would have been very sensitized anyway. It's just it was sort of an extra flashing sign as I was meeting Leslie, her attorney, Lori Nackless, meeting and talking with an array of other people. It was so clear to me the emotional power and the pain that, that this man caused. But the only story I've ever done where every person that I interviewed at some point was in tears. Mm-hmm. Every person that I spoke to, people who are not usually in, in emotional roles at all, they were all working through the story of what had happened, trying to almost game it, come to another ending, an element of not not exactly survivor's guilt, but how could they get tears to survive? I, I've never had that. I've written about a lot of trauma. I've written about a lot of people going through different things. But to have every person wrestling with that on this really deep, powerful level, it, w- it was powerful to me, and I thought it would be powerful to other people. And the deeper point, I think, is getting to a point where we, we can't change the past, but all the different people can try to do something to prevent it's the only thing that I think that everyone can do in terms of sort of honoring Pierce in that way. And Leslie, you created um, Pierce's Pledge. Explain to our listeners what that does. Yeah, so um, Pierce's Pledge was created as a gift to Pierce for his 11th birthday the year before. And a friend of mine who's a family law attorney, and she happens, you know, she's a friend and a, a family law attorney. She has a daughter who's the same age as Pierce, and we would travel together as, as moms. So when this happened, she came to me and she said that because of what happened to Pierce, she now asks every one of her clients whether they have guns in their house. And if they do, she, re- she, she requested and required them to store their weapons outside of their house. And, and at the time, she just took it into her own law firm safe and took the guns in. And, and she said she didn't have any problem with anybody um, refusing to, to give her the, the, the weapons. So I sat on that for a little bit, and I thought it was such a powerful action that, that my friend did, and, and it was so beautiful and, and meaningful. And, and when she did it, I thought about it. And one day I, I just thought, you know what? Let's ask every family attorney to do the same thing. 
in hopes to protect the vulnerable kids in custody because, you know, uh, it is a contentious time and you don't know how people are going to react. And I do think that that's probably the one thing that we could have done to protect Pierce a little bit or given him a chance to at least scream or something like that. So, um, so I started Pierce's Pledge. And what we're doing is we're, we're asking every family attorney to be aware of, of firearms, to ask the question with their clients whether there are firearms in the house and if they have them to store them off property. And because storage is such a hard problem in, in the USA, we've also taken on a campaign to go through and call every single gun store, every single life, uh, federal firearm licensee that can sell or buy or store guns to see whether or not they can store it on behalf of other people, people in need, people who are suicidal, people who are in a custody battle. Maybe their kids are in their house and they're not sure about their emotional state. Just There are times when you need to be separated from, from your, your gun. And so we've, we've called through all 55,000 of these federal license holder ones, and uh, we found out only 4% store guns, and so we've put that on our map. So now we have a map of these licensees that can store guns for people. And so Pierce's Pledge is um, committed to going to every family law attorney conference and talking to every single lawyer to tell them that they're a part of this and they have a job and can help us and to protect our kids by, by asking these really tough questions. And I, I'm hoping that a side part of it is that when they're asking these questions about firearms, they can get a better insight into what's going on in the court case and an insight into, you know, whether there is domestic violence or if there is coercive control or, or some kind of something bigger going on in the, in the custody case. And when we talked last night, you know, I learned from you that we have a number of businesses here who are licensed to store guns for people. And you, you know, call these places up. Yep. We called. There's 95 federal firearm licensees in Hawaii, in the state of Hawaii. You know, you have many, many islands, but in the state of Hawaii. And there are five. There are five businesses in the state of Hawaii who will store, who will store your weapon for you, which means that you go there and say, you know, I need this out of my house and they will take it. It's a fee. They, they charge a monthly fee and every every company is different, but it's available. And and when there's times that you need separation from your gun, short term, long term, you don't have to get rid of your ownership. You can just store it when you need it. And, you know, I mean, that's something that, you know, wasn't on my radar, but, you know, after, you know, learning your story and, and the tragedy of, you know, what happened with your son and your husband. I'm just uh, amazed that you, you know, were able to create this uh, nonprofit and try and get the word out that we can do more to protect our children. Yeah, I, I do believe that, you know, this is, unfortunately, my job is to build Pierce's legacy. He was supposed to be my legacy, but now I have that job. And if I can save one child in honor of Pierce, then I think everything we're doing is worth it. And, you know, it's one child every six days that gets murdered by a parent during a custody or separation or divorce. Those numbers are staggering, and that's in the U.S. And the majority of them are with guns. And so if we can be a little bit safer, I think that it would, I mean, it could do something. It can really make a difference. I think of it as a seatbelt law, to be honest, the seatbelts were invented in the 1900s, but they weren't law until the 70s. But it wasn't until like, the Race Car Club of America took a stand in the 50s, and they required, they saw that many drivers were getting killed during races. And so they took a stand. They said, anybody who races during our race club must wear a seatbelt. And so that stand that they took, you know, influenced how we all now wear seatbelts and get in the car and instantly put on our seatbelts. And so this is what we're asking of family law attorneys to take a stand to say, you know, we, we want you to ask about firearms if you can to require your clients to store them or to ask them or, or at least insist, you know, that they store their weapons just in case, right? Just in case something happens that we're a little bit safer. And so that is how, um, how I think, you know, that could save a kid or save a, a, a parent. Or, um, and, and like I told you, you know, it's not just Pierce that was affected in me, like my life 
he's um, incredibly destroyed. But it's also the kids in Pierce's class, the entire school. I mean, Pierce's classmates, they have a really hard time. I've heard a lot about it, a lot of nightmares. You know, they ask their parents, their dad, dad, can you kill me? Mm. Would you kill me? You know, these are questions that nine-year-olds shouldn't be be asking, you know, but they, they, they are, this is the reality now when something like this happens. Well, you know, I think because of your ties, both of you, you know, to Hawaii, Eric, you were here for, for several years as a journalist, and, and Leslie, you know, your your parents have a business here as well, and so I know you have memories uh, of your son here in Hawaii uh, and many good times, and, and uh, we just want to send aloha your way. I mean, Pearson's favorite place is Hawaii. It was our safe place, you know, we would go to... Um, feel, you know, I was divorced for many years and my ex-husband was a real terrible, hard person to deal with. And when we got to Hawaii, we felt safe, you know, mm. and it's a real special place for us. Pierce and I would hang out there alone and we'd feel really, really safe. So thank you for the aloha. All right. And thank you so much, Eric, for sharing your story. Thank you so much for having us, Catherine. And that was journalist Eric Pape and Bay Area resident Leslie Hugh. Who we talked to last month, Leslie's nine-year-old son Pierce was killed by her ex-husband in 2021. We'll have links on the conversation page of our website to Pape's story on the Atavist, as well as links to the map created by Pierce's Pledge, the nonprofit created by Hugh to honor her son's memory and to help protect families from gun violence. is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Today we're delving into the backyard in search of the Hawaiian name for a prickly endemic plant that's part of the poppy family. However, unlike those opium-producing flowers, this plant doesn't produce morphine or codeine. Instead, the sap and seeds were used by early Hawaiians to treat toothache pain, ulcers, and nerve pain. It usually bears white flowers, but be warned, it's very pokey. The stems, flower buds, and seed pods are usually covered with prickles. You might have heard it's commonly referred to as the beach poppy. For today's backyard quiz, we want to know the Hawaiian name of this prickly herb that can be found growing wild in dry leeward parts of the state. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right scores an HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing parents and children experiencing homelessness with opportunities to secure housing, including Family Promise of Hawaii. NareetHawaii.com. Theft investigation at the Honolulu Airport is a subject of our reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Christina Jedra joins us today. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be here. Yes, and so this case, I, you know, quite honestly, I almost forgot about this. I remember that there were uh, probing uh, some misdeeds over at the airport. Right. This has been going on for a couple of years now. Uh, there was a, a raid at the airport, um, the maintenance base yard, back in 2021, April 2021. 
Um, and so I've just gotten some new documents, disciplinary records actually, that shed a little more light on the investigation. But as of now, seven people have been arrested or at least seven people, none have been charged. And uh, the AG's office says the case is ongoing. Well, uh, you were able to uncover some disciplinary action though. Right, so uh, one gentleman was fired. His name uh, is Arnold Keave Sr. He was a mechanic supervisor. And so he was arrested as part of the probe. And then at that point, airport administrators started looking into his behavior, checked CCTV footage and other records and noticed that Keave had returned uh, several pieces of equipment that had been missing that I guess apparently they hadn't noticed had been missing until that point. Um, and Keave said that he did take the equipment home, but only because he had volunteered to help refurbish the items in his spare time. He said he got his boss's approval for that, uh, but the supervisor denied that, and ultimately the state deemed this to be theft, and Keave was terminated in July of 2022. So he was caught returning the items. He kind of like borrowed it right. then. <laughs> That's what he said. He said he was kind of borrowing it to, to fix things up, to help the base yard out, uh, but the state did not buy that. Um, and so the records I have are kind of about the circumstances around his termination, uh, but the records also sort of hint at what the AG's office may be looking at. Um, the airport division in its investigation looked into claims of illicit procurement matters uh, involving a local business and also falsification of overtime, but ultimately they decided that would be doubling up on what the AG was looking into and it wasn't really worth their time uh, that they were able to cut Keave loose just with the, the theft claim alone. And so we still don't know then what uh, they're zeroing in on, you know, with, with this investigation. Um, right, there's still a lot of unanswered questions and um, all the AG's office would say is that the case is ongoing. They don't really have any other comment. Um, one other interesting aspect, though, is the illicit procurement matter that the AG's office is looking into um, involves uh, allegedly a local business of a beach auto repair. Um, that's headed by a guy named Freddie Karabakan, if I'm saying that correctly. He's a deputy sheriff. Um, and I spoke to him this week and he said he was arrested for suspected theft, but hasn't heard anything from investigators since then. Uh, and he says he, he did nothing wrong, that he was a contractor for the yard, but everything was on the up and up. Uh, so that's his perspective. Yeah, so, so it, it's interesting though, I guess as you, you know, look deeper, uh, if just things were too lax over there at that um, base yard, Right. The, the, what we know already does raise some interesting questions. You know, how does a bunch of equipment go missing? Uh, in at least one case for several years, um, and no one really noticed or raised concerns about the inventory. So, um, you know, I would hope that they've shored things up over there and uh, know what's coming in and out. But uh, the DOT did not comment for this story. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, it was uh, in the headlines, you know, with the raid and all those arrests, and you'd think that there would be charges. So it's surprising uh, that nothing's uh, come up like that. Right. Well, you know, these things can take some time, uh, years uh, in some cases. But, um, yeah, this one has been going on for some time, and you would think there may be statute of limitations coming up. I'm not sure, you know, depending on the nature of uh, the charges. So. Hopefully, we'll get another update soon. All right. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Christina. Thank you. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. You can read her story at civilbeat.org. HelpingMaui.org. It's been two weeks since the go-to website for housing launched under the direction of the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement. It aims to centralize information about programs to help get displaced families on Maui out of hotel rooms and into permanent rentals. 
We talked to Kohail Lewis this morning, the head of CNHA, about the progress being made uh, so far, as well as the plan for rolling out incentives for uh, accessory dwelling units, or ADUs. So the goal of the new website, which is HelpingMaui.org, has been to centralize information. One of the biggest challenges we hear from whether it's survivors or even landlords or owners that want to offer their homes is like, where do we go? So the goal of the site is to start to centralize information for people and also provide a portal for them to either offer their homes or for survivors to access those homes. So that's what we've created. It's kind of like a Hawaii version of Airbnb where, you know, if you want to offer your house and you have someone looking for a house, you get matched up. So that's the premise of the website. But the response has been strong. We have over 400 applications. These are people willing to offer their homes. So we're going through the process of vetting them, negotiating rates, entering into agreements with them. And then the next phase will be to help survivors who have applied to the website match up with those homes based on their needs. Since launching the program, We've actually been able, through just this website, through this effort, been able to house over two dozen families already. So we're on our way. A lot of this is education, having to educate these landlords and these owners so that they feel comfortable. And I think most of the process right now is just in in that phase where we're working with them on securing an agreement between CNHA and the landowner. So that's another element. One thing that we're doing differently is CNHA takes on the lease. We guarantee rent payments. We provide them assurances that their home won't won't be damaged. So there's a policy that insurance policy for them. We also check in on the family every month. So it provides the landlord or the owner a peace of mind knowing that, you know, someone's looking after their interests. And that's been the big obstacle. They don't want to just let people in and and not know that their property or their interests are going to be looked after. So providing that additional support, I think, has provided them peace of mind to where they're now open to letting families in. So you are acting as a management company? In a way. I mean, some of it is CNHA directly, but it's more working with property managers that actually specialize in this. From us, it's more on the case management side, seeing how we can best support the survivor's situation. But in that process, of course, we're making sure that our housing that's under us, technically where the landlord at that point is looked after. How does this work? Because I know FEMA has its program, and Mm -hmm. it is working with some management companies as well. But then you also have the Department of Human Services, which has the families that are not eligible for FEMA, and there's that program as well. So, you know, there's no one-size-fit-all for these families. They're all in different situations, and I think the different programs are tailored to try to address the differences that each family is facing, the uniqueness. So for our program, what we are doing is we're using rental assistance money that these families are able to receive from FEMA, and we're using private dollars to fill the gap. You know, whereas some of the other programs, uh, they take the burden on 100%. So for us, it's leveraging the resources that they're already entitled to and using philanthropy or private dollars to help make them whole, and then phasing them off over time to where the family picks up more of the responsibility and there's less subsidy that's provided. So it's kind of like our approach to this is looking, because in a year, FEMA's gone, which I think is part of the problem. You know, what happens when FEMA's gone? Who's going to hold all these families up? Because I don't think they'll be able to move back to Lahaina in a year. So what we're doing is we're looking at it from after a year, how do these families still stand up? And it's got to be some kind of a triaged way in which the subsidy decreases over time and their share picks up over time and private dollars are filling gaps. So it's it's looking at this more holistically is how we're seeing it. But of course, this is based on, you know, us looking at these models, you know, over time through our Kako'o Resource Center, talking with families, talking with officials. This is to us the best solution that we can offer. But, you know, for DHS and for FEMA, they're just looking at how do we get people in housing now? So that's just different approaches, I think. You are also working on a component that involves new construction with the Mm -hmm. ADUs. Another constant question we get from folks on Maui that want to help is like, hey, if I want to build an extra bedroom or if I want to put an ohana home on my property, I have a large enough property, how can I get some support? So we've heard that over and over. So we're launching in the middle of January, and just I think uh, sometime next week more details will be rolled out. But essentially, it's a forgivable loan. What we're going to do is provide families with up to $50,000 of a loan. So you come to us with your approved county permit, allowing you to build this additional dwelling unit or temporary dwelling unit or ohana unit. 
we'll give you a $25,000 loan. And then when the project is done, we'll give you the other $25,000. And if you agree to house a family for whatever time we agree on, that loan will be forgiven. If you don't agree to the terms or you violate the terms some midway of the agreement, then it turns into a loan and you got to pay us back for the money. But it is providing other options to get these families Correct. into housing. Catherine, the, the reality is there's just not enough options. And even with the very aggressive approach to try and convert short-term rentals, it's just not happening fast enough. And it almost it's getting to the point where we have to come to the realization that we got to build. We have to build homes. We have to build temporary dwelling units. We have to build additional dwelling units. There's no way around it. There's just some short-term rentals. They're just, they're just not going to participate. And there's some we just can't afford. You know, we can't afford to be spending 11000 a month for two-bedroom EDUs. Maybe FEMA can't afford that, but FEMA's going to be gone in a year. So, you know, what happens then? So we have to start thinking about like, how do we start putting new homes on Maui? And that, that's just the reality. And so these ADUs, these accessible dwelling units, I mean, you know, it's nothing new, but what I worry about is the permitting process. Because we did talk mm-hmm. to one family who was living in Lahaina, and uh, he was a union member, ILWU, and, and mentioned that, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have housing somewhere else, but he needs to demolish that unit because it's uninhabitable. inhabitable. And so the permitting process, he says, is, is slow, even just to demolish. Right. And so there's that component that we worry about. Oh, yeah, I think we're all worried about that. The good thing is that we've been working with the county. This is where private sector can come in. And so providing them with, you know, the, the engineering firms to help them expedite the process, looking at low-hanging fruits, like which properties we know have adequate infrastructure, water, sewer capacity. So I think that there is conversation. The county is absolutely looking in from my lens, and I've I've been in the rooms in the conversations, they are looking at expediting certain areas, identifying areas in which these are more likely to go. So I think the county is absolutely stepping up to figure out how to expedite the permitting process because even they recognize it's too slow currently. We understand that there may be some announcement tomorrow about a concerted effort to really move this along because we just have to get these families into more permanent housing. You know, Catherine, we've been hearing over the last few months, you know, all different initiatives that have been launched from different organizations, from the state, from the county, from private sector, like from CNHA. So I think tomorrow is an announcement where you start to see it all come together, where you start seeing the key players that have been had significant roles in helping to address the housing crisis work more cohesively and you start to see a plan emerge and that plan is multifaceted. I don't want to spill the beans but I think that it's something that the community has been looking forward to. It's like okay how does this all make sense? What is the big plan? I think that's what you'll get to see tomorrow is is some of these pieces all coming together to create um, a system where families are starting to move out of hotels and into more stable housing. Yeah and whether this be housing I don't know modular housing or mm-hmm. tiny homes, or uh, something that we haven't really seen here before. We we just have to be innovative because our need is so great right now. Yeah, you know, I, I see the I see the work that's going on, and you know, oftentimes it's not portrayed in in the way it should be. The state's doing a great job of trying to address the problem. The county's doing a lot of work. It's just a, we got to work on the messaging so that people understand it better. I think that's kind of been the, the pocket that we've been in. It's like, okay, how do we distill all of what's going on so people can understand it, so they can access it, so they can put their finger on it? And tomorrow, I think, is to that end to try and help people access information and see what is evolving with all the different partners. Okay. All right. So we'll have to stay tuned. <laughs> but thank you so much, Kuhio. And we just hope to get you know regular updates because if there's you know a property owner out there that is on the fence, you know, what will it take to get them to say, Yes, uh, please come. I'll kokua and and, uh, house you. Absolutely. Thanks, Catherine. That was Kohio Lewis, President and CEO of the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement.
Support for HPR comes from SMS Consulting, providing data-driven strategic planning and evaluation services to nonprofits, businesses, and government agencies in Hawaii. Learn more at smshawaii.com. This Saturday, HPR presents the Barden Niscala Duo live at the Atherton Studio. Watch this cello and piano duo perform works by Dvorak, Mahler, and Clara Schumann alongside newer pieces celebrating identity through music. For tickets and more information, visit hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Support for HPR comes from the Arn and Ruth Worchick Charitable Fund. Learn more about the Arn and Ruth Worchick Masters of Library and Information Science Scholarship awarded annually by Friends of the Library's Kona at folkhawaii.com. And now it's time to pick the answer to our floral backyard quiz. Earlier in the show, we described the beach poppy, the only native poppy to our islands. When in bloom, the plant is topped with white, delicate, six-petal flowers. A recognizable trait is a large amount of prickles that cover the whole plant, from stems to leaves to flower buds, even the seed pods. Beware. If you're into botany, you probably know we're talking about the puakala, which is the answer to today's backyard quiz. It's one of the few plants that can grow in very dry, windy locations and is drought tolerant, making it suitable for xeriscape gardens. Just remember to wear gloves when handling the prickly puakala. And our winner today, first time caller Hunter from Kailua. You got it right. And that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one you'd like to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. The 2024 Grammy Awards will be handed out next month, and among those nominated yet again is producer Jason Baum. Baum grew up on Maui and graduated from Maui High School. He worked on music videos and other productions with several recognizable names, including Beyonce and Kendrick Lamar. He won a Grammy in 2018 for Lamar's video for the song Humble. The Conversations Russell Subiono talked with, uh, to Baum ahead of last year's Grammy ceremony when he received his third nomination for best music video. I imagine music videos are highly collaborative projects. When you start pre-production on a music video, what do you think it is that you bring to the process that is uniquely you? I think a lot of what people are looking for when they bring me onto a project is my access or knowledge to other talented individuals. I spend a lot of time tracking other important crew members from like a director of photography or an editor or a colorist. I'm always keeping tabs on who's doing interesting work because, you know, potentially the director's first choice might not be available or they might be looking to work with someone new. So what I typically bring to the project is a network or at least a mind or a resource of people to bring onto the project to make it better. If not myself, you know, I bring you know, my own knowledge of references and like and technology. I, I try to stay very well read and kept up to all the latest technologies and cameras and things that are available that might be very beneficial for something specific that we're doing. And I think it's also... As you said, the, the process is very collaborative and you're looking for someone that I guess has taste or able to, when someone's unsure of the creative decision that needs to be made, that they need a collaborator. They need someone to be like, is this good? Is it not good? How could it be better? So it's someone to be able to bounce off those ideas with. You're, you're talking about the network. That's really important. Knowing people, knowing what's new, knowing what's fresh. It's kind of like, it's kind of a Hawaii skill too, right? Like the more people you know, the more you can get done here. What are some other Hawaii qualities that you kind of bring to the industry? Is there anything you borrow from your upbringing that you kind of fuse into your work? Sure. I mean, I think 
Growing up in Hawaii is such a unique experience that, you know, it's really hard to convey to someone that hasn't grown up here. I think you're right. Like, I think growing up in Hawaii has affected my taste and the things that I like and sort of the things that are interesting to me. But even sort of the smallest details, I mean, a lot of people say that I'm very chill, I'm very relaxed, very peaceful and easy to work with. I don't know what makes that uniquely Hawaiian, but... You know, that is something that I only can assume comes with growing up on an island and not growing up in like New York City or something. And I know that you grew up on Maui, graduated from Maui High. And I've heard you say in a past interview that that is where you kind of got your start in media. Can you talk about how growing up on Maui and the opportunities that you received while growing up there kind of prepared you for where you are now? Yeah, definitely. Maui High at the time, or even still to this day, has a a very, very strong technology program, whereas through grants or through other sort of things that they've been able to arrange for their various programs there, that is kind of what exposed me to media as like a career. I didn't know I wanted to do film from the get-go. Like it wasn't something that I, at the age of seven, I picked up a camera and was like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. It was kind of just through school and just having access to cameras and software and computers and having what was then, you know, the the latest and greatest things that I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. Like I enjoyed doing this. And when I started to realize that there's actual occupations that people do these things for a living and it doesn't have to just be a hobby was when I started to take it more seriously. And it was through a short film that I made in high school that I submitted to New York University's film program that then kind of set me on this path of filmmaking because essentially I didn't really expect to get in and it wasn't my dream of dreams to go to film school. It was just more this like, oh, I got accepted and there's this film that I just made with a bunch of my friends that they somehow think is good. So there must be something there. So I kind of went to NYU on a whim trying to figure out what they saw in this film that I made and why I got accepted, I guess. And when you think about the next generation of artists or the next generation of producers or or people in media, how do you identify or what do you think is attractive about new talent that you like to work with? What do you think you look for? What do you think the industry is looking for? Well, I think uh, the next wave of talent is going to be so different than quote unquote, my generation, it makes me feel very old saying that I'm a millennial. But if you look at a a Gen Z audience, you know, they grew up with the internet since they were born. They had access to a phone much younger. I didn't have a cell phone until I was 18. Very late in high school was really the start of the internet for me. So I just think that this next, I guess, Generation Z would would have such a different perspective. And it's it's interesting to see that, you know, what all these factors have done to their taste and, you know, how they, they make things, which is really cool. When you look at the movement in film and television that they're making toward telling broader stories, more inclusive stories, what are your thoughts on the increase in opportunities to tell Hawaii stories? What, do you, what are you seeing from your perspective? I think it's definitely getting easier and easier. I think it still requires a lot of effort from producers and studios and people with distribution and with money. It's nice to see so many more unique stories being told and being exposed to a greater audience. And I think that is progress. That is where the society needs to go and develop to, you know, be not only just more inclusive, but just more whole as a society. Do you feel like this is a time that local filmmakers, local artists can jump in and find success? Yeah, I I think the time is always now. You know, generally speaking, progress is slow, but it's people trying that, you know, makes these things happen sooner. And yeah, if you look at the latest round of Oscar nominations, it's pretty incredible. It's, you know, a couple of glass ceilings being broken very quickly, not quickly, but all at the same time. So the more people that try to keep breaking in and keep pushing this rock up this hill, the better. What's your favorite story of working with an artist or on a project from your time in the industry? I know you've worked with a lot of huge names, you know, A-list names, names like Beyonce, Kendrick Lamar, Arcade Fire. 
I'm a huge Beastie Boys fan, and I know you worked on their documentary with Spike Jones. What's your favorite story working with an artist or on a project? Well, I think, uh, you know, it's rare for me to find someone that is not what they, they seem. Everyone is remarkably normal as much as you want to sort of exotify them and uh, think that they're more than a human. But I guess I would sort of really, I, I really cherish some of these relationships of artists that I get to work with more than, more than once. You know, Kendrick's been very lovely to work with over the past couple of years. But um, I also, you know, I have this really wonderful relationship with the musician Sia, where I produce a couple of her music videos. I went on to work on her film. And it's artists that really try and put in the work and really care about the things that they're making and also care about the people that they work with and treat them very well. I always cherish that when, whenever it feels like you can have a real moment with someone that's deemed a celebrity, it always feels nice to be reminded that they are normal. So Beyonce, pretty cool. She was cool. Yeah, lovely. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> right now, well, thanks so much for your time, Jason. Really appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. That was Grammy-winning producer and Maui native uh, Jason Baum talking with the Conversations Russell Subiano. Baum is nominated this year for his work on the video for Kendrick Lamar's Count Me Out. It is his fourth Grammy nomination. You said I feel better if I just worked hard without lifting my head up. That left me fed up. You made me worry. I wanted my best version, but you ignored me. Then changed the story. Well, that does it for us today. Up tomorrow, we talk public corruption and then some. Give us some feedback. Call or talk back line 808-792-8217 or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find past shows of the conversation on our website or wherever you tune in for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.